0: (laughs) Okay, if you could uh, be bringing your conversations to a close, that would be wonderful. If you want to grab a seat, that would also be wonderful. (laughs) Great. Well, as Philip said, uh, my name is Liam, and it's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me back. Um, Although, actually, having said that, I realise probably most of you had no say in that. Um, I don't (laughs) imagine he took a vote, so... um, if you are disappointed to see me again, I'm, I please accept my apologies uh, and take it out on um, Philip, who is not even here in the room. He is obviously not a fan either, <laughs> and uh, he created a way of people getting out of the sermon. I thought that was great. I expected one or two. Clearly, people thought oh, Liam, and there's more people who want to become members. So that's that's a wonderful way to do it. If I had been Philip, I probably would have waited until about two minutes into the sermon and then walked out. That would have been far more dramatic. Um, and if any of you do that, if you storm out, I'm just going to assume that it's because I'm speaking so well. You think, I want to be part of this church. I want to be a member. I want to be both feet in. It's not just that I'm dreadful. So um, that's how I'm going to kid myself for the next 35 minutes or so. Um, My name is Liam. I am part of a leadership team at a church called Christ Church London. We meet in four locations across the city, which is a new adventure for us. Uh, South London in Stockwell, uh, Blackfriars in the centre, West End and Bethnal Green out east. So uh, uh, this is a joy and a privilege to be here. Not only because I do like this church and and I feel like I'm a friend of this church, but also because it means I only have to preach once today rather than four times in different parts of the city. So this is easy. (laughs) And um, it's not easy, but you'll probably get four times worth of energy packed into one talk because I don't have to do it four times today. So we are looking at the story of Joshua. As I understand it, you are coming towards the end of a series uh, on the story of... Did I say Joshua. <laughs> we're preaching on Joshua at our church. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Joseph, sorry, I may do that for the entire sermon. Who knows? Um, I've been preaching on Joshua for months now. So no, Joseph, and we are in Genesis chapter 44 this morning, and we're drawing towards the end of the story of Joseph. And just a recap for for me, so I know I'm in the right talk. Um, he had 11 brothers, and Joseph was the favorite of his father Jacob. And jo- Joseph had "'Dreams from God, that one day he would be elevated to a position of authority "'and all his brothers would bow down before him. "'His brothers didn't like that very much. "'They threw him in a pit, they sold him into slavery, "'and they convinced his father that he was dead.' Then over 22 years, Joseph was bought and sold, displaced from his homeland, put to work in Potiphar's house, hit on by Potiphar's wife, falsely accused, imprisoned, and finally raised to a place of power. And at this point in the story that we're going to pick up today, (laughs) Joseph is second in command over the nation of Egypt, and he is managing their food provisions during a seven-year famine. Now, this famine brings all of Joseph's brothers to Egypt to try and find food to feed their family and keep them alive. And in the passage, I think you saw two weeks ago now actually, the last one in this series, um, we saw that Joseph started to essentially play a bit of a trick on the brothers to draw out a sense of where their hearts are at and to uh, see if they would confess to what they had done 22 years previously, to see if they were in effect the same people he had known in his youth. And in chapter 44, Joseph plays one final test on the brothers which focuses on the person of Benjamin. Now just to remind you, uh, here's the family tree. Uh, Jacob Jo- uh, Joseph's dad had four wives, and he had 12 children by these different wives. His favorite wife was Rachel, from whom he had two children Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph was the favorite son. But actually, when Joseph uh, died, when uh, he thought that he had lost him, Jacob's preference, his love, was really transferred to Rachel's other son, Benjamin. So Benjamin now became the favorite son. And in fact, Jacob cared so much about Benjamin that when he sent all the kids to Egypt to get food, he wouldn't let Benjamin go because he thought, well, if I lose one of the other 10, no great loss. (laughs) But if I lose Benjamin, that's it. That's like that's the end of my world, my grey head he says will go down to the grave and in fact the only way that Benjamin gets to go is because Judah begs with his father and says look if we don't get food we're going to we're going to die let me take him in essence I guarantee Benjamin's life and so they travel to Egypt and now Joseph plays one final test on his brothers to see if they will give up Benjamin their father's favorite as they once did with him. So as the brothers are about to leave Egypt, Joseph instructs one of the servants to put a cup in Benjamin's bag. They travel back on on the journey back towards Jacob and the servant catches up with them and accuses them of theft. And this is what happens. Genesis 44. It's quite a long passage, but stick with me. Says this, Why does my lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. Why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my lord's slaves. Very well, then, the servant said, Let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave, the rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find out things by divination? What can we say to my Lord, Judah replied? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who has found to have the cup. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, let me speak a word to my Lord. Now, and here in the passage, in fact, if you've got a Bible, you'll see, begins this most impassioned, long speech. It's beautiful. It's really heartfelt as Judah expresses uh, how he feels. And he goes through the whole story of what has happened up to this point. And point by point, he shows... Uh, various things that have happened. He explains how his father uh, is in ill health, and there were eleven, uh, well, twelve brothers, and one of them died, and, and now there are only eleven, and Benjamin is the favorite, and, and all these sorts of things. He explains the whole thing, and he explains that jo- Jacob is in such ill health that the prospect of letting Benjamin to go go to Egypt was so devastating, and because of their desperation, he'd let Benjamin go, but it would crush him if Benjamin didn't return. And so we pick up verse twenty-seven. He says, "Your servant my." my My father said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, He has surely been torn to pieces, and I've not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is so closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant, talking about himself, your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as the Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. It's a long passage, but an important one. And this is the turning point of the story for Judah, for the character of Judah, where he just lays everything bare. It's the moment that Joseph has been waiting for that demonstrates the change that has happened in Judah's heart. For 22 years, Judah has been carrying this secret from his father, that he was complicit in the selling of his brother into slavery. And I suspect that over those 22 years, in different ways at different times, that secret has eaten away at him. I can't imagine that he and his father had the greatest of relationships because there was this thing between them, this hidden secret that he couldn't shake. And actually in this passage, he doesn't confess to this specific thing. But if you read the commentators, the theologians talking about this passage, most of them agree that this is in the forefront of his mind at this moment. Verse 16, he says, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. And on a surface reading, it might look like he's talking about the cup in the sack, but he can't be talking about that at all. The commentators say he must be talking about something different because Judah has already protested their innocence. He said, we haven't stolen the cup. And so if he actually thought that, well, maybe there was a chance they were guilty, he wouldn't have made such a rash promises to say, well, if the cup is found, you can kill us and, and put the rest in slavery. Judah thinks he is innocent of this crime. He says to Joseph, What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. And I think here, Judah knows that they are innocent of this crime, but there's another power at work here. God has uncovered some other sort of guilt. There is a deeper, darker secret that seems to have come to the surface. And the reason why... Why Judah thinks this is probably because he feels like this guilt that he's carried, hidden for 22 years, has been just there, undealt with, and now God has taken that moment to raise it to the surface, unveiling the secrets of the past. He thinks that God has seen the secrets he thought he'd kept hidden. In chapter 42, which he saw two weeks ago, when this happened the first time and the money appeared in their sacks, do you remember that part of the story? No. Yes, some of you do. Good. <laughs> Uh, This is what he says. He says, What is this God has done to us? Surely we are being punished because of our brother. That's why this distress had come upon us. Judah thinks that this is all happening because God has seen the things he thought he'd kept hidden for 22 years. But also I think he fears that Joseph, this guy who he doesn't know it's Joseph, but this guy he's before has also seen the things he kept hidden for 22 years Verse 15 says this, "What have you have done? Uh, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? Now, in verse 5, we're told that the cup that is in the sack is the kind of cup that was used for divination. And in the ancient Near East, in many of the nations, actually not in Israel, it was forbidden in Israel, but in many nations, they would have these cups and they would practice what is known as hydromancy, where you'd have this cup and you'd pour water or oil or wine or in it. And it was believed that by looking at the ripples and the way it moved in the, the cup, you could tell something about the future and about someone's heart. And Joseph says, don't you know I can do that? Now, probably he couldn't do that. Actually, it was forbidden in his nation, so probably he wouldn't have done that at all. But he wants to give the idea that he can see into their hearts to try and draw out of Judah this confession, this recognition of what he has done. Essentially, it strikes fear into the hearts of Judah. It makes them think, if this man can see into my heart, Can he see what I did 22 years ago? Can he see this thing I've worked so hard to keep hidden? Has it finally caught up with me? Can I have the next slide, please? Uh, this is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, um, author of the Sherlock Holmes stories. And uh, there's a great story about Arthur Conan Doyle. He was a bit of a practical joker. And um, apparently, on one occasion, he sent an anonymous telegram to 12 public people, clergymen, uh, politicians, various people in the public eye. And it simply said this, All is discovered, flee at once. Anonymous telegraph. The next morning, all 12 of them have packed up and left town. <laughs> I love that story. I mean, I really wish it were that easy to get rid of people, <laughs> to be honest. And if I get an anonymous message this week, I'm going to know it's from one of you, so don't, don't even try it. Actually, Philip hasn't heard this. Try it on him. But uh, I love this. I love what it illustrates. This idea that all of us live with these things that we keep secret, and even just the merest hint, the merest hint that it may have been revealed is enough to throw us into panic and survival mode. Carrying secrets is tiring. Wearing a mask is tiring. It is draining. Living with the burden of things that we have done and we have never resolved, never dealt with, eats away at us and wears us down. Maybe some of you know what I mean. Can I have the next slide, please? This is one of my favorite authors, um, A guy called David Foster Wallace, a brilliant, brilliant American postmodern author, sadly took his own life in 2008 after a long, long battle with depression. Uh, He's written this book, The Pale King. It's one of the hardest and most boring but brilliant novels um, I've ever read. And in it, I read it last summer, I think it was, and there's this line in it that really hit me like a ton of bricks. He says this, the next suitable person you're in light conversation with, stop suddenly in the middle of the conversation and look at the person closely and say, what's wrong? Say it in a concerned way. And he'll say, what do you mean? You say, something's wrong. I can tell. What is it? And he'll look stunned and say, how did you know? He doesn't realize something's always wrong with everybody, often more than one thing. He doesn't know that everybody's always going around all the time with something wrong and believing they're exerting great willpower and control to keep other people for whom they think nothing is ever wrong from seeing it. I think that is so insightful. And again, Philip has not heard this, so try it with him over coffee. What's wrong? Actually, maybe don't. <laughs> I think that is so insightful. Many of us live with this sense that there are things in here that I'd rather no one else see. And we exert huge amounts of effort and money and willpower to make ourselves just seem perfect, like there's nothing wrong going on here. And we assume that we're the only ones who ever live with this mask, whereas Foster Wallace says we all do. Something's always wrong with everybody, often more than one thing. Everybody's always going around all the time with something wrong and exerting great willpower and control to keep other people from seeing it. That hit me like a ton of bricks when I read that. I thought, wow, there is, that is true. There is stuff in my heart I don't want anyone else to see. And I tend to put so much effort into giving this kind of polished, perfect, polished, perfect, <laughs> look, this facade, this mask. Because I assume I'm the only one. It's not true. Maybe you can resonate with that. Maybe there are things in your life that you know you don't want anyone to see. And it'll be different for all of us. I have not sold my brother into slavery 22 years ago. I tried, but eBay rejected the listing. It's just (laughs) I don't know what it is for you. But I imagine many of us live with things that just have this residual sense of guilt that eats away at us. The question is, how can we deal with that? Actually, maybe for some of us it's not so much guilt, it's more a sense of shame, things that you have done or have been done to you that leave you just feeling dirty, unclean, unworthy, like no one could ever love you or accept you. Like if God could see into my heart or if someone else could see into my heart, they couldn't accept me, they couldn't love me, they couldn't be in community with me, they couldn't trust me or follow me. The atheist philosopher and author Alain de Botton has written extensively about the failures of atheism um, and, and the value of religion whilst remaining himself one of the most outspoken and leading atheist philosophers of our day. And he argues that forms of atheism or secular humanism or even of religion, to be honest, which basically declare that man is fundamentally good and there is nothing wrong with us that needs dealing with or atoning for, any kind of system that presents that message is fundamentally flawed. It doesn't have the power to help us. What is needed is honesty about the human condition. And although this guy ultimately rejects the heart of the Christian message, he says there is much to be said for the Christian perspective that we are at heart desperate, fragile, vulnerable, sinful creatures, a good deal less wise than we are knowledgeable, always on the verge of anxiety, tortured by our relationships, terrified of death and most of all in need with God. I think he's right. So how do we deal with this? How do we deal with the things in our hearts? How do we break the cycle and stop hiding behind masks? How do we deal with the secrets and the sense of guilt or shame that they leave us with? Well, the model that this story offers us, which the church has practiced for thousands of years, is one of confession, repentance, and faith. Confession, repentance, and faith. I want to look at each point in turn, starting with confession. Confession is about honesty. It's about authenticity. It starts by us being honest with ourselves about the state of our own heart and then turning that into honesty with God about the state of our own heart. And as we confess, as we recognize our need and express that to God, there's an implicit question, an implicit invitation or hope and ask, will you help me to change this thing about myself that I don't like? And the reason that confession is important is because it's not until we have honestly looked into the depths of our own heart and recognized our need for change that we can start to experience freedom from the things that hold us back. Think about Judah in this passage and his sorrow. His actions, I think, demonstrate, finally, 22 years on, his awareness of his need. Now, of course, there are different types of sorrow. There's the sorrow at being found out, (laughs) which is understandable. That is not powerful. There's the sorrow at recognizing you were wrong and you need to do something about it. You need to change. The former is understandable but powerless. The latter is powerful because it opens the door to forgiveness and restoration. In verse 13, when the brothers spot the cup in the sack, it says this, At this they tore their clothes. Now the tearing of clothes is a sign of remorse and mourning in the ancient world. It's a sign of grief at the loss of someone who is dear to you. Now, it could well be that the reason they tear their clothes, and this was usually something they would do when someone died, it could be that the reason they're doing it is in in anticipation of what is going to happen. They're tearing their clothes in anticipation of the death of Benjamin that is to come. But I think if you look at the whole story of uh, Joshua, Joseph, it is more likely that the tearing of the clothes has a symbolic meaning. Because if you go back earlier in the story, you'll find there was another time when people tore clothes. In Genesis 37, when Reuben comes along to the cistern where they put the brother and they find that he's not there, he tears his clothes. This presumably means that Reuben at that moment assumed that his brother wasn't there because the others had killed him. And so in mourning, he tears his clothes. When they go back to the family and they tell Jacob what has happened, what happens? Jacob tears his clothes. Now, actually, it would be customary for the whole family to mourn the loss of Joseph. They would all have been um, duty-bound to tear their clothes in mourning, and yet they don't. So for 22 years, none of them had mourned the death or the loss of their brother. They probably couldn't have brought themselves to do it, knowing it was based in a lie. But now, 22 years later, as they figure that their actions have caught up with them, it brings out of them mourning, and they finally face up to the reality of what they had done. Now, in Judah's speech, he doesn't explicitly talk about what he had done to Joseph. But again, the commentators say it would have been in his mind the whole way through. Getting free from the secrets that we hold in our hearts, that hold us back, that bind us, begins by us being honest about our sin, our failure, our brokenness, the things that we have done, the things done to us that leave us damaged, and bringing it to God in confession. And sometimes... Painful though this is, the way to bring things from us to God is through others. Some of the most difficult, painful, embarrassing conversations I've ever had have been where I've sat down with someone else and I've said to them, look, I trust you. Can I be honest with you? There is this thing in my life that I don't like, that I can't seem to deal with. Can you help me? These have been some of the most difficult conversations because no one wants to be (laughs) that open about our weaknesses. We are so accustomed to having this mask that we show everyone. But those conversations have often been some of the most powerful releasing ones. I can think back to particular times where I've sat down with someone and said, I've not told anyone this. Can I tell you this? And can you help me get right with God? They have been powerful conversations. Confession. Recognizing the state of our heart. Our need. And bringing it to God, sometimes through others. When we do this, when we sit down with someone else and we say, can I tell you what is really in my heart? It is a powerful thing because it breaks the idea that I am the only one with issues. That Foster Wallace thing. We all assume that we're the only one, that no one else has anything they're hiding. When you sit down with someone else and say, I need to confess this. Can I talk this through with you? It breaks the power because it reminds us of the truth that we are not the only ones. We are all broken, vulnerable creatures in need, as de Botton says, in need of God. Are there things in your heart that you know you need to get right with God? And might there be steps that you need to take, you could take today or this week? You may find it helpful just as we come to the end, we'll have an opportunity to worship, to take communion, and to pray. You may find it helpful just to, in your heart, confess things to God, maybe things you've never said to Him before. You may find it helpful as we take communion to go through that process, to seek prayer from someone at the end, or to find someone you trust, either here today or maybe during the week in one of your life groups, and say, can I just have a conversation with you? I need to tell this to someone. And get it off your chest. Work through things together. You will find it a powerful, releasing thing to do. The first step is confession. But if that is to be powerful for lasting change, it needs to be coupled with something else, a genuine desire to change. And the term that the Bible uses for this is repentance. It means to recognize the destructive habits and ways of thinking and acting in our lives and to turn away from them and commit to living completely differently. Turning away from one way of living and beginning to live a different way. And I think Judah is in the process of repentance. I think we see hints of that here in this passage. Look at verse 16. Judah says, what can we say to my Lord? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. Judah is here confessing something of his guilt and he's looking for a way to put it right. He's saying, not only I'm sorry, but let me put it right. Let me do something about it. Let me live differently. He says, um, far, uh, Joseph replies, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. And this, I think, is a very deliberate move from Joseph because he lays this predicament before his brothers. Essentially, he creates the same scenario that they faced before, saying, will you act the same way you did 22 years ago? Will you give up the father's favorite son or will you act a different way? In other words, are you genuinely embracing the process of repentance such that you are committing to live in a different way to how you have in the past? Judah's response is amazing. It is a long and detailed speech in which he recounts the whole story. He pleads for mercy. And if you look through it, I'm not going to go through it in detail. Go through it. Read it. Read the whole thing. Point by point, it's like he faces up to the things of his past. He accepts them and he expresses a desire to move on. He talks about Jacob's love for Benjamin. The very favoritism that had actually led to the betrayal in the first place. He talks about this But rather than speak with bitterness, for the first time in Judah's story, he speaks with compassion. He says, my father said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. Now, Jacob had four wives, not just one. And the fact that he only calls one of them, Rachel, his wife, expresses something awful about the way that Jacob made him feel. It must have been heartbreaking for the brothers to know that their mother was not even really Jacob's favorite, and none of them were his father's favorite. He says, my wife bore me two sons, only two, only two that really mattered. They were the truly precious ones. One of them went away from me, and I said, he's surely been torn to pieces, and I've not seen him since. If you take this one, Benjamin, from me too, and harm comes to him, you'll bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. I can't fathom what it must have been like for Judah and the other brothers to know that you are less loved than your siblings. This is bad parenting, to be clear, <laughs> in case you're in any doubt. But the reason I say that, I mean, it's a serious point. We sometimes assume that Jacob's a good guy, he's the hero of the story. He is not. He has fundamentally failed his kids. And that is important because sometimes when we think about sin and brokenness and that, we can always think it's all about stuff that we have done. Sometimes there are sins done to us that also leave leave us with this residual shame or guilt. Recognizing that we are people in need of God means that we also need to recognize that things have been done to us as well as us having done things to others that also need to be dealt with, confessed, talked through, brought into the light Now, Judah could have racked up bitterness against his father. Instead, in this passage, he shows love and compassion from him, which is vastly different from anything we've seen before. Fourteen times, Judah mentions his father in appealing for mercy. And at the end of the speech, Judah does something remarkable. We'll come back to it again in a minute. He offers himself as a sacrifice to save the life of the father who so mistreated him. That is quite powerful. That is radical. That shows that something is going on in Judah's heart, that he is now choosing to live differently to how he ever had before. This is true repentance. He wants to change. He wants to move on. He wants to make things right. If there are things in your life that you know you have kept hidden, maybe things that you have done, maybe things done to you that have made you feel dirty, unlovable, unacceptable, bring them into the light. Bring them to God. Allow him to deal with them so that you can live differently as a result. And it may well be, I don't know you guys, it may well be that there are particular steps that you want to take this week. Again, sit down with someone you trust. Say, would you help me to live differently? Would you give me ideas of how I can move on from this? Would you keep me accountable? Would you help me to live a life that is pleasing to God? Confession, repentance, and thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, faith. Faith. Faith means to put your trust in something or someone. And here in this passage, Judah and the brothers are putting their faith, they are putting their trust in the person of Joseph. They literally put their lives in his hands as they throw themselves down at his feet to see if he will forgive. And for us, the same is true. When we become aware of our need, that we are, as Alain de Botton says, at heart, desperate, fragile, vulnerable, sinful creatures, most of all in need for God. When we become aware of that, the first step is to confess it, to recognize our need. Then a desire to change, to move on, to live differently. But the way we move on is by putting our faith, our trust, our lives in the hands of God. And what happens next in this story is surprising. And I don't mean just in this actual little story, the story of Joseph. I mean in the story of the Bible. What happens from this moment on is just hugely shocking. Because Judah is arguably the least likable character in this story. I mean, he masterminded the selling or the, the the getting rid of his brother. That's not a great thing to do in case you're in any doubt or you missed that week in the series. That's not a good thing to do. I don't think you even looked at Genesis chapter 38 in this series. Go and read that chapter. It's... it's a pretty gruelling chapter. If you read that, you will find that you dislike Judah a lot more than you already do. His past is so checkered, and yet here something changes. And yet, despite all that is true of Judah, or has been true up to this point, of the 12 brothers which become the 12 tribes of Israel, it is not from the tribe of Joseph or Benjamin or Reuben, or any of the others that true hope comes. It's through Judah's line. God chose and had a plan and a purpose for the worst of the brothers because it is through Judah's bloodline that comes King David. And to King David, God made the promise that from your bloodline, continuation of the line of Judah, would come a king who will be like my beloved son, who will bring about a kingdom that will never end. That was a promise to Judah's descendants And it was from Judah's line that comes Jesus. And in the New Testament, time and time again, in Matthew, Luke, Hebrews, and Revelation, we are told that Jesus is of the line of Judah. And little could this guy Judah know that as he knelt before Joseph, begging for his life, that God had a plan through him to change the world forevermore. It's incredible. Utterly undeserved that God could use Judah to turn around all the problems of the world. And there is something so beautifully significant about what Judah does in this passage. It must have felt, well, it must have felt significant to him, but I don't think he could have grasped the symbolism of what he was doing in this moment. But as he kneels before Joseph, he says this, Please let me, your servant, remain here as your slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. Judah offers himself as a sacrifice in the place of Benjamin. And without even knowing it, that act, that sacrifice foreshadows what Jesus, the ultimate Judahite, does for all of us today. As at the cross, he said, let me stand in the place. Let me take the brokenness upon myself and let my brothers go free. (laughs) Judah foreshadows the perfect Judahite, the one from the line of Judah, the descendant of David, the son who is so loved by the father who at the cross took upon himself all of our weakness, our vulnerability, our guilt, our shame, everything that we have done to contribute to the brokenness of this world and everything done to us as well. He took it all upon himself so that we could know freedom to return to our Father, so that we could come into relationship with our Heavenly Father, with God. It is because of the cross that we can ultimately put our trust in God. And when I say that faith is important, I don't just mean that in an abstract sense, like, oh, I've got loads of faith, which just means I'm really optimistic. That's not what I'm talking about. Faith always has an object. And faith should be focused on the cross of Christ. It is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus that we can know restoration into relationship with God. And I can't imagine what it must have felt like for the brothers, lying here at the feet of Joseph, full of fear, no idea if he will love them and forgive them or punish them. They throw themselves at his feet, throw themselves on his mercy and just blind hope, hoping uh, beyond hope that he might be positive, he might treat them well, thinking probably, will he actually forgive me? For many of us, that's the idea that we come to God with. We wrestle with questions about even if there is a God. And then we tend to think, well, if there is a God, surely he wouldn't love me. If he could see my heart, surely he wouldn't love me. And where there comes a moment of faith, we can sort of think that it's like this God who we, he could go either way. And we think, will he love me? Will he accept me? How will I know? Look to the cross and you'll know. Look to the cross and you will know the love of God. Where Jesus took the pain upon himself that he didn't deserve. It shows us the extent of his mercy, his desire to draw you back into relationship with him. Maybe you think, well, how could God have a plan or a purpose for me after all I have done, after all the damage that I've experienced in my life? If God can turn around Judah, he can turn around anyone. And we only have hope for a future. Forgiveness, cleanness, relationship with God, a place in his plan and his purposes because of the cross of Jesus. Look at the cross and you will know the extent of God's love for you. And get this, as Judah kneels before Joseph, he has no idea that this guy before him knows his sin more clearly than he could possibly imagine. He thinks he's just a stranger. Little does he know, this guy knows exactly every detail of what he did 22 years ago. And yet, Joseph loves him anyway. The message of the gospel is not that we come to God and confess things and it surprises him. And then he weighs up whether or not to love us. We come to a God who already knows our hearts more intimately than we could possibly imagine. He knows everything we have done, even the things we are unaware of. And he loves us anyway. That's the gospel. So whatever you have done, however you feel, however distant you feel from God today, look at the cross and know he loves you. He is overflowing with mercy for you. He wants to draw you to himself like we heard this morning about the restoration of Peter. He wants to do that to you. And that fact that, as Philip said, Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He draws Peter back to himself. And then what does he do? He says, feed my sheep. He gives them a purpose. He gives them something to do. He gives them a place in the church and a place in the great plan of God. God can do that for you today. He wants to draw you back saying, do you love me? Am I the object of your faith? In that case, have purpose, have love, have a future, have forgiveness, have relationship. Go back into restoration in relationship with your father. That's the gospel. That's what God wants to do for us today. Now, in a moment, we're going to take communion. And this is really a way of responding to this offer, this love, uh, this demonstration of grace through the cross. And I don't know if you're familiar with communion. I imagine many of you have taken communion many times before. Maybe for some of you, it's a brand new thought, a brand new idea. What we do when we take communion is this. We come and we take a bit of bread, which represents the broken body of Jesus. And we have some... Wine or grape juice, or whatever you use here. Uh, and that represents the blood of Jesus shed for us. And as we take the bread and we take the juice, it's like a way of identifying ourselves with those elements of saying, I recognize my need. I recognize that if I am to experience life to the full, I need these things. And it recognizes that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the object of our faith, the thing we put our trust in. We don't put our trust in even community or our ability to make ourselves right. We only put our trust in the cross. And so, when we take communion, and there'll be stations here at the front, and I think one at the back with gluten-free bread, if that's you know, Jesus' body light at the back. Um, As we come and we take communion, it's a way of saying I put my trust in this, not in myself, in this, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as such, communion is a powerful thing for anyone who identifies as a follower of Jesus. And if you're here today and you're like, I'm only exploring this thing. I've got a ton of questions. Uh, I'm not following jesus i'm not ready to make that claim that's totally fine feel under no obligation at all to uh, to take communion what you may find helpful is this as you look at other people doing this rather bizarre thing ask yourself why is it that these people are finding this such a powerful meaningful ritual and what do i personally make of the death and resurrection of jesus and if you have questions, I would love to chat to you at the end. If you're exploring faith, I will, I'll be here, I'll happily answer as many of them as I possibly can. I would love to talk with you and help you on your journey. But it may well be that actually you've been exploring faith for a while and you're right on the edge and you're thinking, actually today, you know what? I'm ready to say, Jesus, I recognize my need and I trust in your death and resurrection. I've never done this before. Today, I want that to be the line in the sand. Throw myself on your mercy and ask for a relationship with God. If that is you, Communion can be a brilliant first step of that. Come forward, take communion, and then get prayer from someone. Ask for someone to pray with you and let you know relationship with the Father. Maybe Robin can come back up and join us. So we're going to worship. And this is a moment just to bring our hearts back to God. And it may well be that as you worship, you might want to take just the first minute or so, just quietly to ask yourself, are there things in my heart that I need to confess to God? And this is not just something we do once. Actually, Martin Luther, the um, Protestant theologian, he said, all of life is repentance. He's right, because all of life is just growing in a sense of honesty and awareness of our need for him and regularly bringing our lives back to God, asking for restoration. All of life is repentance. Repentance. So as we start to worship, you may just want to take a moment to confess things to God. And then when you're ready, there's bread and juice down the front and gluten-free stuff at the back as well. Do make the most of this. Take this as an opportunity to confess, repent, and reassert your trust in Jesus. And then at the end, if we can pray for you for anything at all, there will be a prayer team, and Robin will say a bit more about that in a moment. But why don't we stand, let's worship, and let's celebrate communion together.